All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. All right, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Show. I am Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor, and we have got a fantastic show this week. We have got Glenn Hughes, the president of the American Sport Fishing Association in the Enshore Offshore Digital Studio, and we are going to talk about the recreational fishing industry. And as a point of information, I think it's important to know that there are currently about 60 million registered anglers in the United States, and those numbers translate into not only big business, but also big community. So talking with the president of the recreational sport fishing industry's number one insider is going to be an eye-opening and informative conversation. And since this is the kickoff episode of the Fishing Professor Show, I want to encourage all of you charter listeners to take it upon yourselves to spread the gospel and help get the Fishing Professor Show in the ears of all 60 million of those anglers, whether they're old salts or newbies. And all of you listening to this first episode are hereby press-ganged into the Fishing Professor listening crew with all the rights and irresponsibilities there within. Now, in addition to that conversation with Glenn Hughes today, I'll be counting down my top 10 favorite snook lures. And on the bourbon break today, that's right, we review bourbons for all you anglers out there. I'll be offering up my review of Eagle Rare 10 from Buffalo Trace. And so, you know, if you ever need it and you want to make a comment, leave a question or suggest a topic for the show, you should always feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. So go ahead and get comfy, turn up the volume, and let's get fishy. All right. Well, it is a real honor today to have Glenn Hughes in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio. Mr. Hughes is the president of the American Sport Fishing Association, the nonprofit trade association of the sport fishing industry. The ASA, under his leadership, works to safeguard and promote the enduring economic conservation and social values of recreational fishing for the benefit of all Americans. The ASA was formed back in 1933, and it represents the interest of hundreds of businesses and organizations tied to the recreational fishing and boating industries. The ASA also oversees ICAST, the largest trade show in the recreational fishing industry, and also works to promote legislation locally and federally to support anglers' rights. Now, before taking the helm at ASA, Mr. Hughes, all right, I got to stop with the Mr. Hughes stuff. I'm, I'm, I've known you too long. I have to call you Glenn. I Seriously. can't perform you. But Please. Glenn worked in outdoor media. Uh, he was the editor of Motorboat Magazine and then Sport Fishing Magazine, and he was paramount in the development of Bonnier Corporation, one of the leading publishers in outdoor media. Glenn was named the Florida Magazine Association Publisher of the Year in 2006 and won the MRAA Jerry Martin Journalism Award in 2012. Glenn has spent his entire career in the outdoor industry with more than 20 years of service within ASA and now for the last three years as president of ASA. Like I said, it's an honor to have Glenn Hughes in the inshore offshore digital studio today because really 
there are few people who know more about the recreational fishing industry than does Glenn Hughes. Glenn, thanks so much for being here and welcome to the Rodcast. Hey, Sid, thanks for having me. I look forward to the conversation. It's always good to get together with you. I'm going to throw in a couple of quick um, addendums to, to the intro. Uh, this will be finishing my fourth uh, year uh, this month uh, as president of ASA. And I've been on staff here for eight years and enjoyed 25 years in the, in the magazine uh, publishing business in boating and fishing magazines. Can't claim to have ever been an editor, but I was fortunate to be publisher of, of quite a handful of magazines from sport fishing and saltwater sportsmen and Marlin magazines to boating and yachting and motorboating and sailing. And, uh, and so it's, it was a great, great ride to this point. One other point I'll make is that uh, I'd like to say my whole career was in this, but I, I actually detoured my first two years with my engineering degree, I was a, a, a uh, engineer at Boeing helicopter for, for two years and, and found out I really shouldn't be an, edit, an engineer at Boeing helicopter. And then I got into the, to the boating and fishing business. Excellent. And that was, that was right out of, uh, you were at Penn State, right? Uh, yes, sir. Excellent. Well, I appreciate the, the, the update. And let's, let's start this by talking about the American Sport Fishing Association. Now, because it's a trade association, its function is known well by those inside the industry. But as is discussed at a lot of ASA meetings, the 50 million anglers licensed to fish in the U.S. who rely on the industry may not be aware of ASA or what it does. So could we start off with an overview of what ASA does and the impact ASA has on anglers across the country? Certainly. Uh, thanks for asking. So, as you mentioned earlier, 1933, it's going to be our 90th anniversary in 2023 uh, as the American Sport Fishing Association. Prior to that, it was the American Fishing Tackle Manufacturers Association, uh, but it's been a little more than 25 years since the name was changed. And we are the trade organization that represents recreational fishing uh, in Washington, D.C. and across the country. That representation is, is kind of first and foremost, the fishing tackle industry side of it. It's the rods, reels, and lines, and lures, you know, the fishing nets and, and tackle boxes and, and anything that you're going to use when you go out and, and uh, to spend an enjoyable day of fishing. So when we represent the industry, we're also representing the anglers because if, if, it's, if it's good for the industry, it's good for the anglers. If it's good for the anglers, it's good for the industry. And on our end, it means it's good for, for conservation as well. So here, our mission is to look out for the interests of the sport fishing industry and the entire recreational fishing community. And we do that by uh, looking after the five pillars of we want clean water, we want abundant fisheries, we want access to those fish, we want to support trade and commerce, and we want to help increase participation in fishing. So that's kind of a quick background. And yeah, that's, that's great. And uh, I was going to ask about the five pillars, but let's let's go on with that. So what you're talking about is a reciprocal relationship between the industry and the anglers in the U.S. And one of the things ASA talks about in that relationship is promoting ways to increase the numbers of anglers that are out there. So over the last couple of years during the COVID pandemic, we've seen a substantial growth in the numbers of anglers across the country. What is it about this pandemic that led more people to want to go fishing? Uh, another very good question, and, and, and surveys were still asking that. But uh, 
folks wanted to get outdoors. Uh, the, obviously, uh, the, the conversation's been had since March of 2020 that uh, a lot of folks didn't go back to their offices, didn't go back to work, kids didn't go back to school, and all of a sudden, there was a lot more, I'll call it free time, time that you weren't spent, spent commuting, and time that could have been used uh, doing other things. And, and then I think moms and dads wanted to get the kids outdoors. And, and so fishing was one of these alternatives that was still available to them, at least in most states. And so uh, folks gave that an opportunity and, and, and we watched an increase in that participation starting in as early as April of 2020 and, and really continue through 2020 into 21. I'd say things might be slowing down a little bit because of the rest of the country opening up and, and other schools opening up, people going back to work, uh, other sports coming about from soccer and baseball and, and others that uh, it may slow things down. But ultimately, folks wanted to get their families outside. They wanted to spend quality time with their, their friends and families. And, and fishing was a great opportunity to do just that. How did that uh, increase, that sudden increase, affect the industry? Is, was the industry ready for that surge? <laughs> uh, I would say to just about a company, uh, the answer is no, they weren't quite ready for that, partially because I realized when, when March 13th, 2020 hit, it, it all but shut down not only the country, but the fishing industry where uh, sales stopped. You know, the companies and uh, retail outlets were closed. And so for those last two weeks of March and, and most of April and much of April, business had come to a halt. And, and so companies were thinking about how could they contract? How could they hold on? How could they hold back? And then it exploded. And then it was a matter of how can we get more product? How can we get more production? How can we get more distribution? How can we find more employees? And so in the grand scheme of things, they are still catching up from the spring of 2020. And, uh, and, and, and some folks will say that they, they have caught up, but at the same time, um, it's the other issues now. It's not so much the demand, although the demand's still there, it is still more about uh, production uh, and distribution issues. It sounds like a, uh, you know, a, a situation that you kind of want to have happen, but not that suddenly, when all of a sudden sales skyrocket and then you just can't get the manufacturing end of things to keep up with things. I would add that uh, I, I had the opportunity to talk to literally hundreds of our members and, and again, almost every single one would say to you, would say to me that there, it was the best year of, the, of their business career and it was the hardest year of their business career, trying to, to manage that growth and, and, and deliver product to their retailers and to consumers was it was very difficult, but it was their best year. You say that that was consistent from the larger companies, you know, big corporations like Pure Fishing, right down to the small mom and pop kind of businesses? That's correct. So one of the things we've seen over the last few years with this increase in numbers of anglers has also been an increase in the numbers of women coming into recreational fishing. And I've heard you speak about the need to attract not just more women to the sport, but specifically to attract young mothers to fishing. Could you talk a little bit about why recruiting young mothers is important to the future of fishing? So uh, i try to make a long story short. If, if you look at the history of, of the fishing we get um, a majority of the kids start before the age of, of 12. 
And, and then it's a decline after that. So in, in 40 years ago, we might've had 40% of all kids try fishing. And then you can watch the number as they get older decline by the time they're 65, only 13% of fishing. And so over time, if we don't get those kids started, uh, it, it'll decline. And so we've gone from that 40%. Now we're down to about 25% of kids try fishing before the age of 12. And these are some, some research numbers that we get from uh, the five-year studies by the Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, been trying to maintain that every five years. We're down to a, probably under 25% trying fishing before that. And that line is only going to drop again in the future. So unless we get the, the fathers and mothers taking their kids fishing, it probably isn't going to happen. Or unless we get them fishing in schools, it probably isn't going to happen. Or unless we have their friends taking them fishing, it probably isn't going to happen. It comes, you come to find in the research also that the mothers are making most of the decisions with what happens with their kids' free time. And so it's important that the mothers are aware of the opportunities to fish, are, are given information that helps them not only be educated, but feel like they can make a quality decisions. And our friends at RBFF, the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation, do a real nice job of trying to engage women and mothers and, and children into uh, how to get involved in fishing through their takemefishing.org website. You, you mentioned um, having fishing in schools, and I've seen you and heard you talk about uh, lobbying for fishing as a, uh, a, a physical education requirement uh, in schools. Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think that's a great idea, particularly as we're seeing um, fishing teams at the collegiate level and high school level start to increase. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, a lot of credit to BASS and, and, and Major League Fishing on getting uh, high school kids going. The, the example that it was set a little more than 20 years ago is that the uh, National Archery in Schools program was created where uh, a group, including the Archery Trade Association, put together a program with bows and arrows and, and curriculum and, and had that added to uh, a physical education program for, for uh, early school age years. And they've now, uh, just talking to the president of, of uh, NASP uh, a few months ago, right now they're in 9,000 schools teaching 1.3 million kids to shoot bow and arrow. And I give them a lot of credit. It took 20 years, but they've been doing this uh, consistently over that period of time. It was good investment by the industry to get to that point. And if, if they can get archery in schools shooting bow and arrow, I do believe we can get fishing in schools um, tenfold, <laughs> if you will. And, and uh, it has been taught at different levels. And, and, and there's a lot of things being done digitally now. I give a lot of credit to the different folks that are trying to create uh, content and curriculum for the school age kids to, to see it, but until they touch it, feel that rod reel line, cast it, try to attempt to catch fish, learn how to do it, learn how to release them properly, it probably won't exactly hold on. So it, it, everything matters, all of it is going to help, but if we can, uh, you know, there's a lot of days, if you remember in the physical education classes, what, if it was raining outside, then it was uh, indoor kickball or, or uh, murder ball, I don't think they allow murder, murder ball anymore. But uh, we sure would like to see people learn how to cast a rod and reel and, and, uh, and have fun doing it, learning about it. Fantastic. 
I wish I had had that instead of the square dancing days of physical square dancing. <laughs> yeah. A six week unit on square dancing. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are living next to the water and everybody's fishing on the weekends, but they're teaching us square dancing. So, not that there's anything wrong with that. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, so one of the really important things that ASA does is to lobby on behalf of anglers, both at the local and federal levels. And in recent years, ASA has played a significant role in seeing federal policies like the Modernizing Recreational Fishing Act passed, uh, the Forage Fish Conservation Act passed, as well as local legislative efforts, uh, such as the one in Florida to prevent commercial longlining, efforts in California to ban drift gill nets, efforts to protect Bristol Bay, and efforts in the Gulf of Mexico uh, regarding the uh, recreational seasons for red snapper. Could you talk a little bit about ASA's Government Affairs Division and the work that you and Mike Leonard do and why having an organization like ASA taking up these kinds of lobbying efforts is important to every angler out there, whether they're aware of the role that legislative acts play in their fishing or not? Sure. Again, another another long story, but uh, in, in a couple of minutes, I, I've got to give so much credit to Mike Leonard and his team, and that includes Mike Wayne. And Martha Guy is now down in Florida. Kelly Ralston's moved on to another organization, but we still work closely with her. We've got Gary Jennings down in Florida also. Uh, excited about uh, adding someone on the West Coast, Larry Phillips, here in the next week. And, uh, and then we have Connor Bevan also working freshwater. And we've got uh, Annie Chester helping us with, with all these different uh, parts and pieces. And Mike Leonard's been with us for about 13 years. He, he came in as a policy fellow, rather green, uh, behind the gills. And uh, he is absolutely uh, the best here in Washington, D.C. Not only is he respected across our fishing tackle industry, he is respected in, on the Hill. I, I just as I had a, a dinner last night with a congressman and, and other folks from his staff, they're like, Mike Leonard is the best. And so... It, it has to be understood that this is not an easy job. He is, he is smart. He is fast. He is uh, willing to do what it takes to make sure that that communication is, is shared and understood, whatever that particular issue is. And it's the same with the rest of his team. And so we've got a team that's going to continue to communicate not only with Congress, meaning House and Senate, but also administration. And administration, it's a combination of different markets, too. I mean, you've got to deal with Department of Interior when you're talking about fish and wildlife and, and uh, you got to talk to agriculture when you want to talk about the Forest Service and you got to talk to uh, commerce when you want to talk about NOAA. And so all these different groups here in, in D.C., we are going to work with on not only uh, making sure that they're carrying out the laws that have been passed, but making sure they're they're uh, doing them well and not doing things they're not supposed to be doing. So. Depending on the issue, you, you mentioned a lot of them, and I'll throw striped bass in there here in the Northeast as well, or in, in Mid-Atlantic and Northeast, are issues that are, that are hard. They're not, they're not uh, easy decisions. It's not just a, a flip of a switch and, and all of a sudden fishing's great. There's a lot of work that goes into it every day, every week, every month, every year to try to ensure that we have abundant fisheries. And so I give these guys so much credit, and, uh, and then we try to work closely with our advocacy arm Keep America Fishing to share that message with the rest of the uh, anglers out there and our manufacturers to carry that message as well. Our manufacturers play a big role in this. So we have a, a government affairs committee that is more than 30 folks uh, across our industry 
that will work with us on communicating our message and, and coming here to, to Washington, D.C. To, to talk to the Congress and to uh, invite them back to their facilities to make sure that, that they see that their constituents are, are working hard to supply uh, fishing tackle to our to our anglers and uh, and that these are jobs and, and that fishing is a big business. It's not something that is just something somebody does on the weekend. We're talking over 800,000 jobs across the country and uh, and over a $50 billion business for, for the United States. Thanks, yeah. I was fortunate to go with Mike uh, up to DC on one of those trips and it was one of the most eye-opening experiences I've had in working in the industry and uh, just really impressed with the kind of work they do on the Hill there and the opportunities to talk with congressional leaders about uh, about the fishing industry. Uh, uh, Representative Garrett Graves, among those who I know ASA has had a fantastic relationship with. Yep. Um, I suppose it's a good time, too, to put in a plug for Mike Leonard's new government affairs podcast. Uh, you tell us a little bit about that. And the reason I ask is because I think that I think that one of the things that anglers are regularly asking is how they can get involved and how they can stay informed in terms of what's going on at federal and local levels in terms of legislation. So Mike's podcast is designed specifically to provide anglers with that kind of information. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to back up for just a second, Sid. The uh, government affairs team um, is also part of what we're trying to do with our strategic plan. So over the past two years, working with the board of directors and the strategic planning committee, we've put together a plan that is going to help build uh, our, our, our community of, of the sport fishing industry, and then also help improve the, the content and communications of that. Not everybody likes to read emails, hard to believe, and not everybody likes to uh, watch videos. Not everybody likes to go to social media uh, but somewhere we hope we're going to be able to reach these folks. And, and a podcast is another way to do that. And so you know, Mike's a big uh, fan of, of podcasts and, and wanted to be able to try to take a conversation further than just a press release or further than just even a video and be able to have a 15, 20 minute conversation with different folks around the industry that have an impact on what's going on and, and some of the things that they're working for in the future. And so uh, his, his is going to be a little bit more politically motivated. And that's why uh, Mike's podcast is called The Politics of Fishing. And it can be found on any of the different ways people like to listen to their podcasts. And, and so Mike's going to interview someone every other week about uh, these, these different issues that, that impact uh, our industry and impact them as individuals. So it's uh, so far so good and, and, and looking forward to the next one. That's, yeah, it's a phenomenal podcast. Um, I also know you guys have been doing the webinars too. I know recently there was a, a webinar with uh, Representative Rob Whitman. Um, it's a little bit longer than a podcast and pretty detailed, but it's uh, interesting stuff. How can individual anglers then best advocate at the local level for the conditions that affect their fishing? And how does ASA's policy spotlight help local anglers? Good question. Now, as a trade organization, I'll say up front, we're not we, we're, we're not going to be all things to all people. We have a lot of partners out there that we work with. And so a lot of times in the regional markets, you've got CCA, the Coastal Conservation Association. And, and depending on, again, where you are, there's some groups that are bigger and stronger than others. But there's a lot of organizations here in D.C. that might have some more regional reach, like the Congressional Sportsman Foundation, uh, or Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, 
uh, it just depends on on the issue that we're talking about. And so there, there's other groups to be involved with also at, at a consumer level. For us, we want folks to go to our keepamericafishing.org website and, and sign up to receive our, our uh, information, our alerts that they're going to tell people what's going on around the country and potentially regionally how it impacts them in their backyard. And so each, uh, each issue, we've had a few this week, we will go on uh, and, and share information about a particular issue. We're gonna get, tell them how it impacts them. And then we're gonna have a, a way for them to reach out to their congressman with an already prepared letter. If, if they wanna change it, they can change it. But it's, it's important that the, the congressmen and women hear from us. And uh, that means right down to the local level and like right to the local constituent in that district. And we've got all, we've got them all online. It's all connected. Uh, it's really easy to, uh, once you've got it, it's coming to you and we're going to explain things to you. And all you have to do is really act now. So uh, the local folks get involved through keepamericafishing.org and look for other organizations that are, have like-minded uh, approaches to policy. Yeah. I find that a very useful thing when I get my alert and it, the, the take action button allows you to immediately contact your congressman, I think is a, a great feature there. So let's shift gears a bit and let's talk about ICAST. And ICAST is the fishing industry's trade show. And I got to say that after experiencing my first ICAST a while back, I realized that ICAST sheds a very different light on the recreational fishing industry than I had seen as an angler. And I think that for most anglers, when we walk into a tackle shop to buy a lure or a rod or whatever, we really don't get a sense of all that goes on within the industry to put that lure or rod or whatever in your hands. And while ICAST isn't open to the general public, what goes on there each year really does have an impact on just about every angler's fishing life. So could you tell the Fishing Professor Show listening crew uh, a bit about ICAST uh, from for anglers who are not in the industry. Yeah, and uh, see, uh, it, there's so much to say about ICAST. It's it's uh, my favorite week of the year. Mine too. Uh, I've been enjoying ICAST since 1989 uh, as a working the, the magazine business, and now for the last eight years as as an employee at ASA. And it is just that opportunity to bring the industry together. And that industry is, is from the manufacturers, the retailers, the wholesalers and distributors, the media, some, some of the folks at state level uh, conservation. And we, we will be showing off uh, all the innovation that is taking place within the industry. The average ICAST show uh, pre-COVID uh, over the last several years before uh, up to 2019, we, we have well over 500 exhibitors, about 15,000 people, uh, about 1,200 individual retail shops showing up uh, where, for example, Bass Pro is one and, and uh, you know, Walmart's one. And then there's that, that many more that are coming from around the country to see the newest products. And, uh, but also to exchange ideas and to network and and uh, anybody that I speak to that's been to ICAST will say, I did this there. I met this person there. I, I, I learned about that product there. You know, they all, it all seemed to start from ICAST. And, and I can say the relationships that I've built over the last 30 years, many of them started with ICAST, whether it was 30 years ago or 25 years ago or 20 years ago, because of that environment of, of bringing the, the, uh, the fishing world together for the largest fishing tackle show in the world. And uh, if, if you're not there, 
you're really missing something. And, and if you are there, there's so much to take advantage of. It's, it's, it's hard to fit it into just four days. Yeah. I, in the last show pre-COVID, the last ICAST pre-COVID, there was a moment when I was on the show floor and someone over the intercom announced that they had counted over 15,000 people on the show floor at that moment. And I had this sort of epiphany of how often are you in a room with 15,000 people that you know you can have conversations with about a very particular recreational hobby, interest, lifestyle, and just that atmosphere of sharing information is just phenomenal there. It, it really is. And, and uh, it's, as we, as we said, it's, it's not just the, the, the companies, they're, they're going to come there. In the new product showcase, we have close to a thousand new products. And that's not all the new products. That's just the ones that are being put in the showcase. Cause if they're, we're going to have competitions for, you know, that what, what is going to be perceived as the best in category, hard lure, soft lure, salt water, fresh water, rods, reels, lines, lures, you know, clothing, you know, you name it. And, uh, and so there's, there's thousands and thousands of new products that, that are brought to, brought to the, uh, to commerce there at the show for the first time. And so uh, that, 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 that alone, you, you don't have enough time over three days to see all the new products. But you throw in there that we have a demo day and a fishing tournament, and and we're going to have folks from uh, Florida legislature and possibly from from Washington D.C. come and talk. We're going to have other uh, what we call lunch and learn seminars where you have an opportunity to to learn about how to improve your business. And uh, and again, you get you just you get to test the products. You get it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Keep plugging lunch and learn. I'm talking twice at lunch and learn in July. You got it. You got it. We're glad to have you. So, yeah, I mean, that the, the whole thing about the new products, I mean, this really is the opportunity to see new gear, new equipment, new technology. And at, you mentioned the awards, you know, that awards uh, ceremony portion, the energy in that room each year is just magnificent. So over your time, with iCast then, what have been some of the most innovative and game-changing products you've seen introduced at iCast? Oh boy. Oh boy. That's, that's putting me on the spot. Uh, most innovative products. When you think about rods, reels, lines, and lures, it becomes so difficult to, to even see that, that, that maybe minute change that could impact the industry long term, and so uh, sometimes it's I, it's hard to pin one reel or, or rod against another. Um, some of the and it's and it's also um, things like when you think fishing line, a, 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 an angler that may not be too active in it might think that all fishing lines the same, and, and it's just not. So I'm not going to actually call out a name <laughs> Fair um, enough. for any company because. Because everybody's a winner at iCast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not picking sides on constituents, are you? Yeah. But I mean, those, that's yeah. the place where we've seen innovations like the introduction of TPE plastics, which has changed. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot that goes on in terms of what new stuff comes out. All right. So rather than putting you on the spot about that, and since we're talking about uh, ASA and we're talking about, uh, you know, recruiting, um, re recruiting anglers to the, to the recreation, you know, I've, I've heard the story about you and your twin brother and your other siblings uh, growing up outside of Philadelphia in your lake cottage um, in the Poconos where you learned to fish with your dad. Um, 
And I'm always struck by how often anglers, both inside the industry and outside the industry, tell stories of learning to fish as a child and the connections to family. And you've already mentioned this about moms and dads introducing kids. And it's a pretty standard trope among anglers, almost a kind of validation that says, I've been doing this my whole life because it's important to my family. But we've reached a point where ASA and several other recreational fishing and outdoor industries, and you mentioned RBFF for one, and there's, you know, takemefishing.org, um, are focusing on new anglers, both kids and adults. And, you know, you mentioned, we mentioned young mothers in particular. How do these new stories of fishing for the first time that don't have that kind of familial heritage find their way into the tradition of what fishing is growing to be, you know? So how does the kid who first fishes with a stranger at a takemefishing.org event become part of the normal pattern of our fishing stories? Or does that origin yeah. story even matter anymore? It, it does. Uh, there are, the, the story will always matter. And, and the, uh, that, that relationship to somebody that takes somebody fishing for the first time will, does matter. And so like you and me, we didn't grow up uh, with not only not video, you, you had to bring the, the Kodachrome camera along if you wanted to take a picture of something. That's why we don't have a lot of photos of us catching fish when we were kids, do we? But the opportunity to share imagery today and the, and the not only uh, pictures from, from, from your, your cell phone, but uh, the video and the, and the how-to is, is unbelievable. And so I really appreciate the new influencers out there that are teaching kids and sharing information with them, because as I've seen that the, 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 uh, the younger generation is uh, spending a lot of the time on, uh, on video and, and watching YouTube and other channels and, and finding out about things that way. And so, uh, again, RBFF has done a good job of in, incorporating some of these influencers and, and sharing that how to fish, where to fish, what to use. And uh, shout out to uh, Ali D'Andrea, who's doing work for RBFF right now, does a wonderful job in sharing that messaging on, on uh, just simple techniques and, and simple knots and things like that. And sometimes it, it's a lot easier to hear it from her than to hear it from some, <clears throat> somebody in their 50s, uh, old white guy telling them, you know, the ways of the world. And uh, this is how we used to do it. So uh, I think the generational change is going to help uh, the kids, uh, one, maybe feel more comfortable with it, and two, uh, stick with it because there is there is more information out there for them at their fingertips. And I can say that's a conversation that both the ASA Advocacy Committee and the ASA Media Committee have had about, you know, how do we get these young influencers uh, to really start influencing toward growth? So let's stick with this concept of story. Let's put ASA aside for a second. Um, you know, I know that being in DC has given you the opportunity to do a lot of striper fishing and you've all, you're a big advocate for protecting striper fisheries. And right now you're very attentive to the rule changes tied to amendment seven. I also know you got your first Marlin in 2002 while filming the sport fishing television show in Bermuda. You got a 750 pound bluefin tuna in Prince Edward Island I know you've done some salmon fishing in Alaska, sail fishing in Florida, pan fishing in the Poconos, and that list goes on and on and on with a lot of places, a lot of species, and a lot of really fun people. But yeah. you've also got this deep roots in outdoor media where storytelling is crucial. Right. So tell me a fishing story. Tell me one of those stories that pop, pops up for you that you just like telling. 
Uh, I'm going to go back to, uh, uh, I, I'm going to say my giant bluefin tuna in Prince Edward Island. It's, these are things that, uh, it, that, that is the bucket list. That was, that was one of those things that you, you can catch one of those once and, and, and don't necessarily feel like you have to do it again. I wouldn't mind doing it again, but, uh, my goodness, my, my buddy and, and uh, past chairman, Chris Megan, and I took a, a member up to uh, Prince Edward Island to, to each. Chris had caught a few, but to catch our first, uh, my first giant bluefin tuna. And, and it, it's it's hard. It's not something it's like, oh, here we go. We're going to go out for an hour. We're going to each catch one and, and call it a day. Uh, over the course of three days uh, at that time, a couple of years ago, uh, we got, we, 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 caught two fish and uh, uh, one, the other uh, individual caught. And, uh, I got the second one and, and Chris who uh, hosted this didn't have a, didn't even get a shot at it. And part of the reason I bring it up is because when you're out there uh, waiting for, looking for these giant bluefin tuna, you're, you're, you, you count on a great captain and mate. You count on having uh, baits that are going to make sense. You're going to, you count on fishing sonar that's, that's got to be working properly and, and then you got to have weather that's that's reasonable as well. And so uh, after one day of not not getting a fish, the second day being almost lucky to to have gotten one about 600 pounds. Uh, and then and then for, for me, it was day three and having that opportunity to catch them. We broke off three times on faulty line i'll just say that and i certainly won't call out a, a brand in that regard mm -hmm. and 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 just the fact that we had three shots in that day felt like there was maybe not going to be another shot and so when that fourth one hit and that line was peeling off and i got in the chair it was an adrenaline rush like i'd never felt before and for that next i'll say hour and 15 minutes um it was it was such a battle. One, not not hoping it, that it wouldn't break off, and two, testing the will of myself versus a fish. And and when that came alongside of the boat, there is just a, a, a an emotional release feeling that it is, uh, uh, you know, and it was an exhaustion, and yet it was overpowering joy, and and just being able to uh, have that fish on the side of the boat, and then spend 30 minutes to revive it pro properly and, and have them swim away is just one of the greatest moments of, of my life. And uh, I thank Chris Megan and, and, and the folks up in PEI and, and uh, the nice big Penn International 130 I was using. And, and it was just a, it was a great experience. We say it was 750 because measured about 106 inches along the side of the boat. And that's kind of how they decide. Someone may challenge that, but uh, it was a big fish. Yeah, it sounds like a great experience. I'm kind of heartbroken that you didn't say that, uh, you know, uh, sturgeon fishing in Washington was the right memory, but that uh, was number two. <laughs> fishing with you, sturgeon fishing, uh, that experience I'll never forget either. So let's, let's get to the wrap up here and you kind of anticipated it, but I'm going to push you. And so the, the, uh, traditional wrap up question on the show is, um, What's the grail fish then? And you, every angler, even once they've gotten something like your tuna, that's not the end of it. There's still the fish you want out there. So what's your grail fish? What's the fish that's still on that bucket list and the one that you still kind of crave? So 
uh, I'll go back to the experiences. There, there's more experiences that, that I wanted to have than specifically just a, a single fish or, you know, I haven't caught a, a swordfish. I've been on boats when swordfish have been caught. And so I need to catch a swordfish for sure. And, and there's a, a few other species of, of billfish that I haven't caught and, and it'd be nice to catch them, but I'm not hell bent on it. But I, I want to fish Australia. I want to fish the Great Barrier Reef. And I still haven't fished Panama, even though all my friends have fished Panama. And uh, let's see, I want to, I want to, uh, I want to have uh, my son Connor with me uh, when, when, when he, when, and have him catch, you know, his first blue marlin. And, and, uh, and cause we had the opportunity when he was eight years old. And that's another fish story where uh, I'll just say that he, he wasn't ready to get in the chair and, and, and I ended up releasing the fish and, and I'll never forget it. It was more than 20 years ago now. And, and I wish he was in that chair. And I, I look forward to that next opportunity to experience him releasing uh, his first blue marlin. He's got another billfish, but not the blue marlin. So it's experiences that I'm looking forward to, Sid. Not, not one fish, but many experiences, many, many uh, years uh, uh, be ahead of us. Sounds great. I want to, I certainly have Australia and the Great Barrier on my list as well. Glenn, thanks so much time for taking the time to sit and chat today on the Rodcast. I uh, thank you for all that you do for ASA to protect our rights as anglers and to promote recreational fishing as part of the American way of life. And I really, really appreciative that you were willing to take the time and sit and chat with us today. Sid, I enjoyed it. I, I appreciate all you do out there and, and, and representing fishing and, and sharing the message in a nice, clean, concise way. And, and I look forward to not only fishing with you again in the future, but working with you to, to help uh, improve fishing and increase participation in the future. Oh, thanks, Glenn. All right, everybody, that wraps it up. We've got uh, Glenn Hughes from the American Sport Fishing Association. Fish on. Okay, my listening crew, you know them barking dogs and what it means. It means it's time for the bourbon break, that moment when I put down my rod and pick up my bottle. Water's for fishing and bourbon's for sipping, so let's sip a bit and talk about Eagle Rare, that great top-tier bottle from Buffalo Trace. Now, there's some chatter out there about what Buffalo Trace is doing with Eagle Rare. You see, Buffalo Trace does not label Eagle Rare as a single-barrel bourbon. And from what I've read, that's because Buffalo Trace automated their bottling line, and they can't guarantee that when they switch up barrels, there may be residual from one barrel in the line when the next starts filling. So out of their own integrity, Buffalo Trace opts not to make the claim that this is a single-barrel bourbon because they can't necessarily promise that it's a true single-barrel bourbon. Now, I have to say that Eagle Rare is a really popular bourbon, primarily because it's got a price point of about 30 bucks, and for that kind of money, it's as good as it gets. There's nothing super amazing about it. It doesn't give you something no other bourbon gives you. It's not got some secret moment of bourbon flavor epiphany that leaves you thinking this is the chosen bourbon, the bourbon of bourbons. It's just a damn fine, reliable bourbon. It's like getting a lab puppy. You know what you're getting, and you're damn glad just to have that. So Eagle Rare is a 10-year bourbon, but Buffalo Trace isn't giving away their grain numbers on this one. I'm guessing based on the taste, though, that this is a low rye content bourbon. 
Now, as to that taste, I do have to say that I enjoy the Eagle Rare. It's exactly what you want a bourbon to taste like. It's really woody, and it's a woody bourbon. And that tasty oak taste, that, that toasty oak taste dominates throughout the taste progression. But that's not a bad thing, because alongside that woody flavor, there's a dominant sense of sweet, and that sweet comes through noticeably in the nose. There's sweet fruit here in the wood in the nose, citrus, maybe some cherries, but dark, rich cherries like those Attica or Chelan cherries. They grow up in the Pacific Northwest, not maraschino or even those bright red cherries that you get in a cherry pie, though I do love me some cherry pie. Damn it. Now I got warrant in my head, too. Bourbon, back to bourbon and cherries and the Eagle Rare. Those cherries are certainly there along with some honey, some caramel and brown sugar in the palate and maybe a hint of spice like allspice and cinnamon, but only a hint. It's odd though. You'd think that with all this sweet and fruit, the oak would get drowned out, but the oak is there holding it all together. You'd also think that with all the sweet, there's a bit deeper sense to the bourbon. But this isn't a deep flavor. It's all right there in the palate up front in harmony. It makes it an enjoyable bourbon. Now, the finish takes all that sweet and wood and adds a bit of vanilla to round it out, but not in some flavor bend where the finish is distinct from the overall palate. It just kind of waves goodbye. No fanfare, no finale. So, in all, this is a damn fine bourbon, and the Eagle Rare should make a great addition to your bar. So, fly with the Eagle. I want to fly like an eagle to the sea. Fly like an eagle, let this spirit carry me. Ha! Bet you didn't realize Steve Miller was singing about bourbon and saltwater fishing. The man's a genius and still touring in 77. So fly like the eagle. But before we wrap up this bourbon break, and as a final note in my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of my pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how that I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout out to Pat O'Brien's on Bourbon Street, one of my favorite places to get rowdy in New Orleans. I know it's not wise to talk about hurricanes in New Orleans in one breath, but damn, does Pat O's serve up a fine hurricane. And like Sinatra said, alcohol may be a man's worst enemy, but the Bible says love your enemy. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. All right, listening crew, because that's it for the bourbon break this week. Let's get back to the fishing. Okay, it is time for one of my favorite parts of the broadcast. It is time for the Fishing Professor's Top 10 list. And this week in the inaugural Top 10 list, I'm going to count down my favorite snook lures. But I'm going to hone the focus a little bit this week and leave out any shrimp imitators. Now, there's a ton of great snook lures out there already, so picking just 10 is tough enough without having to whittle down the dozens upon dozens of shrimp imitators out there. Though I do have to give a nod to Mark Nichols' 6-inch DOA shrimp, which is just a magnificent artificial shrimp for big snook. That said, though, let's leave the shrimp out for for today. You know, screw you, shrimp. 
And let's focus on the twitch baits, the suspending plugs, the poppers, and all of the other great snook lures out there. As always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Show is not sponsored, but if you man up and get your fishing buddies, friends, co-workers, frenemies, significant others, partners, compadres, compatriots, comrades, associates, allies, roommates, companions, chums, cousins, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, to start listening, maybe we'll get the Inventive Fishing, Fish, Fishing Professor Show crew numbers up high enough that some generous company will start sponsoring us and we'll be able to do cool things like, I don't know, maybe have giveaways where I give away, say, a tackle box filled with this week's top 10 snook lures to one lucky member of the Fishing Professor crew. But until that happens, and I get more listeners than just my mom, hi mom, love you, thanks for listening, tell dad he could listen too. But until that time, though, this is an unsponsored, unfettered, uninfluenced, true-to-the-bone top 10 list of the best damn snook lures I use. So here we go. At number 10, let's go with a great mullet imitator, Egret Bates Voodoo Mullet. This is a great lure that I'm in love with. And if you haven't seen my video gear review of the video of the Voodoo Mullet, be sure to check it out at InventaFishing.com or on the InventaFishing YouTube channel. It's a fun review and I get a, little, a lot of comments about it because it's a bit off the wall. As to the Voodoo Mullet, this is a great swim bait style lure. It's a medium sink lure that is great for swimming above structure or grass. I like how it moves around structure in areas like mangroves where snook hang out. The body is articulated in about eight segments held together by a TPE mesh, giving this lure some remarkable lifelike swimming action, particularly when it's retrieved at a mid-range speed. They're rigged with a VMC treble hook and come in two sizes, a three and a half inch quarter ounce and a four and a half inch half ounce. They're also available in about 14 color patterns. It's as solid a snook lure as there is. All right, at number nine, I'm going to go with a lure design by one of the premier lure designers of our time, and that's Patrick Sibyl and the Sibyl Stick Shad. With a lot of reconfiguration in the lure industry, Sibyl's lures are now being distributed through pure fishing, which is great because the Stick Shad really is one of the most versatile, any fishing situation kind of lures out there. Its range of target species is impressive, but it really has that special something that snook just freak out over. Also, I love that the Sibyl Stick Shad comes in so many variations, including different buoyancy sizes and colors. There are sinking and fast sinking models, suspending models, and floating models for topwater fishing. There's even a rocket model designed for long cast situations. One of the things I love about this lure, too, is that when you stop the retrieve, and this is on any of the models of this, the lure remains in a horizontal position, hanging like a bait fish does in midwater. All in all, the Sibyl Stick Shad is just one of those lures you want in your tackle box, no matter what kind of fishing you're doing, but it really is one you want when snook fishing. All right, at number eight, I've got Live Target Sardine Swim Bait. Now, there are eight different species of swim bait in the Live Target Swim Bait portfolio, a mullet, a croaker, a blueback herring, a menhaden, a sardine, a penfish, a Spanish sardine, and an Atlantic mackerel. And I've caught snook on the penfish, the croaker, the mullet, and the sardine. But for some reason, the sardine swim bait has just been more effective for me when it comes to snook. Don't ask me to explain why, but it just has, even though these other Live Target swim baits are great on their own merit. I love the innovative design of the live target swim baits, the way the additional clear oscillator segment of the tail creates a really lifelike swimming action. And of course, live target is known for their lifelike visual qualities in their lures. The sardine swim bait, 
which I have to admit looks like a white bait, even the green back, if you pick a silver and green color combination, just moves in the water like a real bait fish. I love the heavy-duty inline hooks that they're rigged with, and all in all, this is just a top-tier snook bait. All right, at number seven, I'm going to go traditional and turn to the Rapala X-Wrap, a lure that's earned its credentials as a top all-around saltwater lure, but is especially adept at enticing the snook bite. This is one of those lures you turn to because of its swimming action. I also love that when you stop the X-Wrap retrieve, the lure just suspends. It just hangs there like a fish in the water column. The holographic eyes, the translucent body, and feather teaser all make this a visual appealing lure too. But for me, the real key to the X-Wrap is the heavy-duty hooks and the through-body wire. This lure hangs on to Big Snook with confidence. It's available in five sizes, and each size is set to run at different depths. So the four-inch model, which I use a lot, will run between four and six feet deep. They come in about two dozen color variations too, but I seem to have my best look with, luck with Snook with Rapala's Glass Ghost and Maryland color patterns. All right, at number six... I've got Yozuri's Crystal Minnow. Both the original version and the newer 3D model, which uses an internal 3D prism finish to increase visibility with extra flash, which I like when fishing darker waters or back under mangroves or structure where the light isn't penetrating all that well. I like the sinking and the floating models for snook, but tend to fish the sinking model more frequently. I like the floating model in pre-dawn light and just after sunset, especially on flat water. I like the crystal minnow for a slow retrieve and the twitch action it produces. They come in four size options, and I tend to fish the three and a half and the four and three eighths model the most. And while Yozuri offers the crystal minnow in about 20 color variations, when it comes to snook, I tend to like the redhead, clown, bone, and sardine patterns the best. Okay, and number five. I'm going topwater with a classic topwater, probably one of the most iconic topwaters out there, Hedden Zara Spook, the Super Spook and the Super Spook Junior. The Zara Spook line has been a canonical lure line since 1939. The Zara Spook was first developed by the Hedden Company as a wooden lure named the Zargasso 6500 lures. But in 1939, the plastic version was introduced, and following the naming of other plastic lures, Hedden added spook to the name to classify it as a plastic lure. Of course, Hedden claims to be the oldest lure manufacturer in the world, and whether or not that's true, I can't confirm, but I can confirm that their longevity speaks bundles to the reliability of the Zara spook. The Zara spook pretty much invented the walk-the-dog walk retrieval strategy for topwater fishing. And when the snooker busting baits on the surface, the Zara spook is a go-to for me. I'll even throw the chugging spook when I want a little bit of popper action for more water disturbance. One of the things that I love about the whole Zara spook line isn't just the action of the lure on the surface, but the great little V-wake they produce, much like a wounded bait fish would. This is a great feature that draws snook out from undercover to investigate. The whole Zara spook line of lures are just some of the most reliable topwater lures out there. All right, at number four, I'll stay topwater and go back to another Rapala-made lure, the Rapala Skitterwalk. Hands down, one of my favorite topwater lures for any inshore topwater fishing. Like the Zara Spook, the Skitterwalk is also a walk-the-dog type lure. Unlike the Zara Spook's tubular body design, though, the Skitterwalk has a slight football-like swelling mid-body, giving the lure a shape more like a baitfish than a tube. It results in a phenomenal walking action, and the lure works across the surfaces, smooth as a James Bond pickup line. 
The skitterwalk's large internal rattle gives the skitterwalk great sound attractants. And the great 3D holographic eyes and the 22 color variations are just great. But when it comes to snook, I'm a traditionalist with a dedication to the redhead, though the gold, gold mullet pattern finds its way to the end of my line quite a bit as well. All right, at number three, I'm going with another venerable lure from a powerhouse in the inshore lure manufacturing world, Mirror Lures Miradine. Miradine, or however you're supposed to pronounce it. The Miradine is a suspending twitch bait that has become a go-to for inshore anglers, no matter the target species. In terms of attractants, the Miradine 3D eyes and the reflective and skin series bodies make the Miradine a great visual lure, but it's the Miradine's twitching action on the retrieve that's really bite enhancing. The lure is two and five eighths inches in length, which is a just a great mimic size for small pinfish. There's also a Miradine Mini that measures two and a quarter inch, which is great when throwing to juvenile snook, even though it's strong enough to handle those over 30 inch snook. All right, so in this week's runner-up spot, I've got Unfair Lures Rip and Slash. The Rip and Slash comes in two models, a floating model and a slow suspending version, both of which are great snook hookers. The Rip and Slash is available in a 70 millimeter and a 90 millimeter for the slow suspending and a 90 millimeter for the floating. The Rip and Slash is a great casting lure, both for distance and accuracy. And when you're snook fishing along the mangroves, you really want that accuracy in order to place your casts in very specific pockets among the mangroves and not have to worry about whether the lure is going to catch the air mid-flight and wobble out of your intended cast path. The lure is modeled on a cigar minnow shape. Like many other great lures in the Unfair catalog, the Rip and Slash features the painted 3D, the patented 3D gill material. One of those features that I really like about the Rip and Slash 2, which you don't see on as, as many American manufactured saltwater lures, though Unfair is purely an American company, are the transverse hooks, which are hooks that have the barb on the outside of the hook rather than the inside. I also appreciate that the rip and slash features a barrel swivel at the rigging eye rather than just an open eye. This allows the lure to swim more freely on the retrieve. Like all of the lures Paul Van Rienen designs for unfair, the rip and slash is just a phenomenal lure. All right, and that brings us to the magic moment when I tell you my number one favorite snook lure, but let's pause for dramatic effect. Let's force the cliffhanger and get a quick recap of the top nine before the dramatic music plays and we break all the contestants' hearts by announcing this week's prom queen snook bait. So if your memory has already failed, at number 10, we had Egret Bait's Voodoo Mullet. At number nine, Sibyl's Stick Shad. At number eight, Live Target Sardine Swim Bait. At number seven, the Rapala X-Wrap. At six, Yozuri's Crystal Minnow. At five, Hedden Zara Spook. At four, Rapala's Skitter Walk. Three, Mirror Lures Miradine. And at number two, Unfair's Rip and Slash. And that brings me to my number one favorite snook lure. And I will tell you that it is my favorite snook lure because over the last year, I have caught a hell of a lot of snook on it. And that's the Hyperelastic Dart Spin. The Dart Spin is an interesting hybrid that has become my number one go-to snook lure. If you want to see my full video gear review of the Dart Spin, it's available at InventiveFishing.com or on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. And the dart spin is another great Patrick Sibyl design. Now, the dart spin is a kind of hybrid spinnerbait soft body swim bait. It uses a unique design that affixes a willow spinnerbait 
to the aft end of a soft body lure with a patented screw and swivel, leaving the blade fluttering like the tail of a bait fish. They come in three and a half, four and a half, five and a half, and seven inch versions. They also come with rigging options, either unrigged or rigged, or the Dart Spin Pro option, which includes rigged with a round jig head or rigged with a weighted weedless gapped hook. It's this weighted hook version that I've been mostly using because the hook tucks into the gap on the lure's soft body to create a weedless lure that is really helpful when fishing around cover for snook. I've been relying on the 5.5 inch and the 7 inch model for snook. I like the white ghost color pattern and the see-through greenback pattern for snook, but there are eight color options plus four blade color options. All in all, the hyperelastic dart spin has become one of my favorite and most relied upon all around inshore lures, but it has risen to the top of my snook lure preferences. So that's that, my top 10 snook lures list. Don't like my list or love the list? Snook and tired of my opinions? Feel free to let me know at Sid at InventiveFishing.com. And as always, if you're a lure manufacturer and you think I've overlooked your product, just shoot me an email and tell me what I need to look at. And as always, if you'd like the fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. That's it for the fishing professor's top 10 this week. And away we go. Well, that brings us to the end of our inaugural episode of the Fishing Professor Show. I want to thank Glenn Hughes, president of the American Sport Fishing Association, for joining us in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio today. And I want to urge all of you out there to sign up for ASA's action alerts through their webpages at keepamericafishing.org. Before we go, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The rod is in the rack. I say again, the rod is in the rack. And that wraps up this week's Fishing Professor Show. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to the channel so you don't miss a single episode. We've got a great new episode ready for next week and I'll hope you join us for that. As always, if you have a comment or a question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10s, Bourbon Breaks interviews or information about specific products, please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. Be sure to check out the Inventive Fishing webpages and be sure to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!